There's a dinosaur at the door. Go away now. Hello, and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and each episode, a listener sends me the first page of the novel or short story they're working on, I read it out on the show, then talk about ways they could make it better, which sounds like a two-person process, right? Irrelevant to the rest of the world. But no, because it turns out all stories are constructed from the same basic Lego bricks, and by studying one story, you can learn techniques to make your story less shit. Oh, now you're interested, there's something in it for you. Yes, I personally guarantee that by the end of this podcast you will be slightly better equipped to write your novel. And that's all we need, a little bit each day. A little boost. You know, sometimes I wish that there were tiny little spirits or imps or protector deities for writers that we could go to each morning and light a little candle in their shrine and have a bit of an old prey and they'd go ping and fart text directly into our cranial cavities. But failing supernatural intervention, or perhaps as a more practical way of evoking it, I think each day we need to make a little offering to the creative force, the subconscious, or whatever. Now, those concepts are probably total bollocks. I don't actually know. I certainly don't think a dish of potpourri and some chanting are any substitute for loving and reading books. But who knows? Humans throughout history have had our minds stimulated by the weirdest of things. So why not try it? Just for a fuckabout. Nothing else is working, is it? Invent your own personal writing deity. Give them a name and appearance. What do they look like? What sort of offering do you think you might have to give them to get the juices flowing? Hopefully it's going to be something not too hard to source. If your writing spirit insists on three kilos of heroin and a wolf fetus, then you may have to think of some creative ways you could symbolically offer those items. Because what I'm pushing you towards is maybe you could create this creator spirit because I, I think it'd be rather churlish not to invent them especially if they are a deity of creativity it seems like that is part of the process right but then next time you sit down to write kick off with a little three minute ritual honoring your writing spirit you'll be like right jeremy i've drawn a doodle of a funny elephant walked thrice widdishins around my room and said your special chant Ooh, jeremy great spirit of eloquence and drama please invest my fingers with the eager grace of authors long dead and pray strike me with explosive diarrhea should i rise before i reach my word count i mean your chant will be different but whatever why not try it you'll feel silly But, well, I hope you'll feel silly, but as writers, we take ourselves way too fucking seriously. And and, and that's deadly to creativity. Sitting down every morning, feeling yourself the soul bearer of some grand and austere purpose is, is, is a horrible way to start farting about writing a book because that's what we do is ridiculous right better i say that we embrace that that we accept the magic and we start enjoying a piece of that sweet sweet supernatural subcontracting oh yeah right for the three of you i haven't alienated with my increasingly weird and unhinged intros the final one is just going to be instructions for making a time machine then loud static here's today's extract it's called the diviners and it's by liz The hospital wing at Dunguer used to be the castle barracks and later a museum. Now it is gloomy and dark and almost, but not quite, deserted. Luke hovers in the doorway, listening for Mam's breathing and edges towards the sound. There are empty beds in the way, but he evades them with practised ease. The shadowy mass 
that resolves into a bedpan, though. He sees it almost too late, teetering around it so that his right shoe slaps the concrete floor a little harder than he'd like, and he halts. It's not like Job to leave stuff lying around. Luke holds his breath, but the sharp smell has already invaded his nostrils, and he closes his throat in disgust. A muttering from three beds over, and his heart hammers, but then she's silent again. He covers the last few metres and crouches by the mattress, facing her. Now is the most dangerous moment. Will she be calm when she awakes? Will she be quiet? He'd be more sensible to leave without saying goodbye, but he can't do it. Not now. Her hair tumbles over the edge of the mattress. Job and the other nurses have given up tying it back for her because she always pulls it loose. Her face is obscured by the night, but perhaps that's best. This parting needs to be quick, and it will be easier if he can't read her expression. He takes a breath, slides a hand over her arm. Ma'am, here are my cuts. The hospital wing at Dunguer used to be the castle barracks and later a museum. Sorry for inevitably having made a hash of pronouncing that place name. Little is more humiliating in the barbaric alien arena of middle-class England than inadvertently revealing you don't know how to pronounce certain words. We watch some hapless partner of a friend enthuse about eating quinoa whilst on holiday in Quimper, and we grimace with the atavistic terror of island tribes people watching a fellow villager get sacrificed to the volcano god. Horrified by the spectacle, yet secretly, shamefully thrilled, glad it wasn't us this time. This podcast has forced me to confront the grim truth that I often use words in my writing I've never said out loud. I know each time you hear me mispronounce some of the finest words in the English language, it's like I'm weeing on a Rembrandt. It viscerally hurts you to see our language desecrated so. How much worse then when I attempt non-English place names and people, when simple ignorance gets underscored with the moral taint of colonial arrogance and ethnocentrism? But, in a way, isn't the fact that I continue recording this, despite all that, a kind of heroism? Hello Liz, thank you for submitting. I think this is a poor first line. Here's why. First lines are supposed to hook us in. Yes, that's grubby and vulgar, but there you are. Books need readers. Writing might feel lonely, but ultimately it's a collaboration and we can't get the partnership going without that initial spark of attraction. Snap, Kindle, Kindle, Roaring Blaze. The surest way to hook a reader in is to give us a character, give that character a problem and to place both in a clear narrative presence, i.e. an event that is happening in the now of your story. There are other ways, of course, other provocations, other lures. You might give us a distinctive voice, a narrator who immediately makes us sit up and take notice. A simple statement of non-temporally bound facts is tricky to make compelling. Not impossible. Here's how Ursula Le Guin opens The Dispossessed. There was a wall. It did not look important. So simple. So bold. The incredible work that the verb look is asked to do there. There was a wall. It did not look important. Contrasted to the verb was in the previous sentence, look becomes redolent with implication, which of course it is. Le Guin pays off on that subtle promise handsomely. But what she gives us is a bare fact, then a tease. And those sentences are lean. Four words, then five. Here's your sentence. The hospital wing at Dunguer used to be the castle barracks and later a museum which may well prompt the reader to respond, well, good for the bloody hospital wing at Dunguer. The Shield shopping centre in Filton was built on the site of the old Shield laundry. Does that make you want to spend several days of your life reading 90,000 words about it? No, of course not. You go specific, which is great. Lord knows I like specificity, but it has to be in service of something. Give us some drama, some conflict, a human being, a thing in motion, some controversy, 
anything. Now it is gloomy and dark and almost but not quite deserted. Now that's immediately better. We're in the narrative present, helpfully signposted by the word now, and notice how our interest instantly lifts. Now this doesn't justify the previous sentence any more than offering people a relaxing aromatic shower justifies hosing them in hot pig diarrhoea beforehand. But clearly it doesn't work as a first sentence on its own. For a start, there's redundancy, gloomy and dark. Pick one. Almost, but not quite. Yes, almost means not quite. It's like writing Derek was idiomatically, but not literally, shitting himself with terror. If we cut the first sentence, we're left with the pronoun it undefined. So let's transplant the hospital wing into this line. Cut now, if you're writing it in the present tense, now is redundant. So applying these edits, we're left with the hospital wing is dark and almost deserted. Now, Liz, you may argue that this loses some of the beautiful cadence of your original. Now it is gloomy and dark and almost, but not quite, deserted. And I hear you. My background is in poetry. I can pop a boner for a nice metre. But it's important, essential really, that you don't fill out cadence with fluff. For my money, the hospital wing is dark and almost deserted. It's to the point thematic and has that subtle touch of Ursula Le Guin-style implication. It's like, yeah, almost, except for the demon anaesthetist, which to be clear is an anaesthetist demon, not an anaesthetist of demons, although the latter presupposes the existence of demons in such numbers that there's call for specialised anaesthetists if, say, a demon needs to undergo liver surgery, which is scarier, right? And demons suffer from liver problems, apparently. Why do they need to synthesise proteins? That's not what your story's about. Sorry, I was workshopping. Luke hovers in the doorway, listening for Mam's breathing, and edges towards the sound. Okay, if you're going for spooky hospital, avoid the idiomatic use of hovers, unless the big twist of your book is that Luke is a ghost in the classic levitating bedsheet mould. I like that you've introduced a viewpoint character, though. I like that he wants something implicitly. He's listening for Mam's breathing. This is a story. This is the business of story. And edges towards the sound. That's a clunky addendum, especially as we haven't established he's heard a sound yet. He's listening for Mam's breathing, which implies he's hunting for it. Then suddenly he's following the sound. Sounds like I'm nitpicking, but really we should never trivialise nitpicking. Imagine some sexy genitals attached to a person you find attractive. Now imagine those genitals covered in knits. Ugh, not so sexy now. Air listeners, if only they'd bothered to engage in some nitpicking before dropping trousers slash upping skirt. But no, they thought basic crotch hygiene was a form of pedantry. What I'm saying is, you have to establish the existence of the sound somewhere here. And then I'd include this final clause as a separate sentence. He edges towards the sound. There are empty beds in the way, but he evades them with practised ease. Moving at the speed implied by edges, i.e. a slow shuffle, I think it's a bit self-congratulatory to call not colliding with stationary beds practised ease. And he doesn't evade them. They're not ninjas repelling from the ceiling. Most humans moving slowly can avoid walking directly into a two-metre-long motionless object. That level of gross motor skills is unremarkable. If it wasn't, doorways wouldn't be a thing. I'd be trapped in my office. I mean, most days I am trapped in my office, but the culprit is apathy. The shadowy mass that resolves into a bedpan, though, he sees it almost too late, teetering around it so that his right shoe slaps the concrete floor a little harder than he'd like, and he halts. 
shadowy mass implies something huge, like a gaseous monster. Are bedpans made of shiny metal? I, I don't picture there ever being a shadowy mass, unless this kid has cataracts. If you're going for a creepy tone of all the medical apparatus you could have chosen, a bedpan is the worst. Woo! Luke nearly stepped in a piss receptacle. Of course, if this is supposed to be a bit of slapsticky bathos, it works. Teetering around it so that his right shoe slaps the concrete floor a little harder than he'd like is very fiddly, though. Around it, that, right, and a little harder than he'd like, is, is all fluff. You're qualifying the sentence to death in a way that robs it of power and atmosphere. I do this all the time, and I'd do it a lot more if I didn't have a wise agent and editor saying, please stop telling us the fucking thread count of the duvet, Tim. No one cares, in slightly kinder terms. And he halts is like, and edges towards the sound before. It has no business being part of this sentence. Cut and, full stop, he halts. That's a fucking chill little sentence. He halts. It takes confidence to drop sentences like that, and it's a mark of an author who trusts themselves a little bit. It's not like Job to leave stuff lying around. I'm going to assume it's pronounced Job. I don't know. Maybe Job. Knowest thou the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? That's a fruity quote from Job 39.1. You can drop next time you want to ask someone the time. I like this sentence. It introduces a character, a bit of doubt. Nice and simple. Good work. Luke holds his breath, but the sharp smell has already invaded his nostrils and he closes his throat in disgust. So, has he knocked over a pan of piss? What's the sharp smell? I realise you're holding back partly to create tension, but sharp is, ironically, a bit vague when describing an odour. Actually, you could be making the noun do more work here. Is it a stink, a musk, a stench, an aroma? Some words for smells are silly, like pong and funk and whiff, but you do have some options over the dull-as-balls smell. I'm not sure someone can close their throat in disgust, either. That's more of a reflex. His throat closes in disgust. A muttering from three beds over, and his heart hammers, but then she's silent again. Stop gluing clauses together with and. A muttering from three beds over. His heart hammers. Instantly better, more suspenseful. But then she's silent again, accomplishes the remarkable feat of being a five-word sentence where three of the words are redundant. But then, no need to explain the relationship to the previous clauses. This is editorialising to the point of hand-holding. Just start a new sentence. Again, a boring grammatical word and simply stating something we know from context. She falls silent is all you need there. He covers the last few metres and crouches by the mattress facing her. Why mattress, not bed? And you say by the mattress. Do you mean at the foot of the bed, at her side? And why add facing her? Do we really need that qualifier? If I wrote the sentence, he crouched at his mother's bedside, you'd picture him at the side near her head, facing her, right? Not turned away as if squatting to do a guff on her face. He takes a breath, slides a hand over her arm. Ma'am. I just wanted to jump to the end, partially because I think the build-up is overdone, you're milking it. I respect the impulse for suspense, but the hammy, this is the most dangerous moment commentary, means it shades into melodrama. Show, don't tell. However, this final beat here is lovely. Look at how simple it is. He takes a breath, slides a hand over her arm. Ma'am. 
that is tender and nicely observed and pregnant with tension. I like the detail before about her hair hanging over the mattress. The rest you can safely cut, but this is this is solid. It's an action without lots of explanation or fuss around the action. The prose keeps pace with the ongoing reality. Remember, when you stop to give lots of detail, you slow the scene down. Here, the description matches the speed of the action. It takes us about as long to read it as he takes to do it. Never underestimate the power of that in prose. Look, Liz, I think for the tone you're going for, you can afford to be far more spare. Really experiment with stripping back. This is a dark Spartan ward and a character living heartbeat to heartbeat. At least for this scene, make your style not just reflect that, but amplify it. Short sentences, strong nouns and verbs, and a few precision adjectives. Less backstory. Keep it focused. Get out the way of your scene. And that's it. If you'd like your work to be critiqued on a future episode, please go to my website, timclairpoet.co.uk and click on the link in the show notes to get our submission guidelines. Thanks everyone for submitting. I surely do appreciate it. Best wishes and until next time, if you don't write, don't worry, it's fine. <laughs>